Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to mobilize to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ACCOKC. Well, like I said, we're going to be in the book of Acts today. So you can, not the book of Acts, we're getting ready for the book of Acts. We're going to be in Luke today. You can turn your Bibles to Luke 24, grab a pew Bible that's next to you there, or go ahead and grab your phone if you must, but we are aware it's a distraction machine. So if you pick that thing up, just know that you picked up a distraction machine, and you might grab a pew Bible to go along with it, but we're going to be in Luke 24. And the reason I kept saying Acts is because we're treating this chapter as a prequel to the book of Acts. And beginning in two weeks from today, Brock is going to leap into our major sermon series for the year, which is going to be walking our way through the book of Acts. And we're getting a run into it by seeing what happens at the end of Luke. And the reason we're doing those together is because Luke and Acts are written by the same person, Luke. And they're written for the same person, Theophilus, somebody that he knew that he wanted to write an account to of Jesus. And they, the original, they were kind of Luke Acts. They were one book, and we treat them separately now, but they're basically, if they were movie blockbusters, they'd be the same series. So we're seeing Luke is movie one, and Acts is movie two. So we're going to pick it up at the very end of the book of Acts, and we're going to read Acts 24. We're going to start in with verses 36. So Acts 24, 36 is where we start. And what's happening here, and you might remember from last week, this is the day of the resurrection. So this is Resurrection Sunday is where we are. And we are basically in the evening now. So we're 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night on Resurrection Sunday. Early this morning, women went to the tomb, found it empty, saw angels, came back saying, there wasn't a tomb there, there wasn't a body, there were angels, and the people looked at her and said, you're crazy, as one would. And then we saw last week that there were two disciples who were walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a seven-mile walk, and as they walked, somebody came and joined them and said, what's going on? Why are you sad? And it turns out that someone was Jesus. And Jesus hung out with those two disciples for a couple hours, probably, at least. But he hasn't yet shown up and talked to the disciples. So Jesus has been doing all kinds of other things today, except coming to his core group of disciples. So what happens after he shows himself to these two from Emmaus is they, when Jesus is gone, they're like, that's Jesus. We just saw Jesus. And they get up and they hoof it back to Jerusalem, seven miles. And they break into where the disciples are meeting and staying. And they say, we just saw Jesus. We can't believe it. We just saw him. And the disciples are like, we've been hearing reports. We don't know what's going on. And right then, in the middle of that conversation, is where we pick up. So... While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace 
startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Well, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. We talked about Jesus coming and showing himself to us as we were singing these songs. And what we're going to see as we walk through this passage, that we are entering the age to come. Right here, this is where the hinge of history turns. And we see it happening on this day in all these different appearances that Jesus has made to these different people. And picture yourself in this room in Jerusalem. There's been an evening meal of some kind, because there's still fish sitting around that haven't been eaten. And people are confused and wondering what's going on. And while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself comes and stands among them and says something to them, peace be with you. So something is going on where they're talking and they were so startled and frightened by it, they thought they were seeing a ghost. So in some way, as Jesus came and stood among them, they were aware Jesus is here. And they were aware it was so strange and different that they really thought that it was a ghost. Even though people had been coming and saying, we saw him, he's real, their minds went, it's a ghost. Now, people dog on the disciples a lot for not understanding, for not getting it, for not believing it. And I have to say, if I were them, I would be exactly in their shoes. I would not understand it. I would not get it. I would not believe it. I just wouldn't. It's so far out of the realm of what I would even consider possible. Not to mention, consider this is, uh, let's see, the third day since the crucifixion. Anybody who's been through fear and trauma and grief know what it does to your ability to think and what it does to your ability to sleep and what it does to your body. These people probably hadn't slept for a couple days. They were in grief because they had seen Jesus killed. 
And it, when you're in grief, you can't process stuff very well. They were tired, you know, they probably hadn't been eating well. There's a very human thread going on here. And Jesus doesn't come in and say, well, you shouldn't be human. He comes in and meets them in this human place. Look at what he does. He does say to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? This idea of being troubled is the idea of my heart being troubled. Something is wrong in my heart. And then he says that your minds are also filled with doubt. This is a whole body experience that they're having of, I don't know what's going on. It looks like a ghost. Now, there was something, and the gospel writer does not explain it, that gave the impression that this is a spirit and not a flesh and blood person like we're used to. Something about that whole scene made them go to, it's a ghost. And I kind of like that that's not explained. Um, if I were writing it, I would probably focus on all the experiential phenomenon so much, and the gospel writers don't. They say, here's what's happening, we didn't understand, and then they move on to focus on what Jesus is doing and saying. So instead of getting focused off onto details that I would find fascinating but actually aren't really the point, You'll see that we focus here on the point. And one of the things Jesus does is start making a very clear point, not only about who he is, but what his substance is. He says, look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And he's saying, it's me. It is I myself. I'm, it's Jesus. Here, look, look at my hands and feet. Why is he doing that? Why his hands and feet? There must have been some mark still on them from the crucifixion. Some kind of wound or scar that was still there from the crucifixion. He's pointing out, look, look at my hands and feet. Look, see this? It's me. It is really me. I, this is the body you saw hanging on the cross two days ago, three days ago. But then he goes past that, not just look and see, but he says, touch, touch me, look, flesh and blood. And he's like, a spirit, a ghost does not have flesh and blood like you see that I have. Now this term flesh and blood does not necessarily mean a body exactly like we have with flesh and blood because there was something like I said that was somewhat different about this body. It seems that Jesus would show up and then kind of go, and our bodies don't do that, but yet there was also substance to it. He said, I have flesh and blood, and ghosts do not have that. And then to even drill down even further into it, he's like, do you have something to eat here? And they gave him a piece of fish, and he ate it. A ghost does not eat. So he's there eating fish in front of them. And one of the things I just love is that he meets them in their human experience and he points out, this is a physical body. This is a physical body. I am not a ghost. It's real. You can touch me. You can see me. Look, I'm eating even. But another thing that this does is this passage, this part here where he's drilling down on the fact that this is a physical body, it refutes some theories about the resurrection that people have posed over the centuries. So some people have said, well, the disciples were so thrilled about getting Jesus back and 
again and so amazed at Jesus that they talked themselves into having this group hallucination where they saw Jesus. They didn't really see Jesus. They were just creating this out of their own selves. That directly contradicts what the passage said where the people in the room were so doubtful and so scared and so frightened that they would not have talked themselves into a vision of Jesus. These are not people who are going to talk themselves into a group hallucination. Another theory that's arisen about the resurrection is that, well, Jesus in some way arose spiritually. The spiritual essence of Jesus arose. His physical body died as we see physical bodies die, and it stayed dead. But there was an essence, a spirituality of Jesus that arose. And this passage says, nope, this was the body that had been put in the grave with the marks on the hands and the feet, a body that had flesh and blood of some kind, a body that could eat. This was a physical reality. And another really beautiful thing that it does is it counteracts the idea of Gnosticism, which says that the spiritual is good and physical and fleshly is not so good. That's of the earth. That's God's not interested in that. God doesn't bless that. God only cares about the spiritual. And Jesus is drilling in here and saying, my resurrected body is flesh and blood. The physical is good. What God made is good. It's a beautiful passage for doing all that, but Jesus hones in on there. But then you see, he doesn't leave it there. He goes on and makes a quick turnaround and goes straight from there into explaining and commissioning what's going on. So I love that he meets them there, but he doesn't leave them in that place. He says, okay, I want you to understand what's happening. I want you to understand what's going on. So he said to them, look, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And those three categories are just the categories of the Hebrew scripture that they had. So he's just naming the categories of the entire scripture. And notice that it says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So he didn't just tell them, hey, what you're seeing here is what uh, was already written there. How come you guys don't get it? He's saying, what you're seeing here is what was written in the scriptures. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand it. And I love that contrast where he's saying, I'm going to show you myself. You're going to experience me, but I'm also going to explain to you. And I'm going to open your, your mind and reveal myself. And you'll see that combination of experiencing plus opening up into explanation, revelation, it's been happening all day in these different passages. That idea of opening their minds, I don't know if you remember last week, we saw that when Jesus was talking with the two people from Emmaus. There was Cleopas and then there's somebody who wasn't named, uh, I don't know if it was a relative of Cleopas, it was some no-name person. Totally a side note, I am fascinated that on this resurrection day, Jesus spends time with people who, quote, have no names. A lot of time. Walking and talking and teaching and hanging with people with no names. While the people whose names we recognize, Peter, James, John, all of them, they haven't seen him yet. I love that. Something has 
And at one point when I was kind of talking over that with God, I was like, really, you had nothing better to do that day? The first day back after the resurrection than walk all this distance with these no-name people? And he said, no, I had nothing better to do that day. It's great encouragement for all of us no-name people. Jesus really does have, quote, nothing better to do than to hang out with you and to be with you and to do life with you. It is his glory to do that. Just a side note. So when he did that with them, at the end of that time together, he was, let's see, he had explained everything. They were at the house and they said, hey, stay with us tonight. We're gonna make some food. Don't keep on going on the road. It's getting to evening, it's getting late. And so they made food. And here's what he did. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. So they didn't know who he was until their eyes were opened. And then later as they were talking about it, they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scriptures to us? So first their eyes were opened and then scripture was opened and that allowed them to see Jesus. And now with the disciples, here he is opening their minds so that they can understand scripture. I kind of sat with that for a while, that idea that our eyes need to be opened, scripture needs to be opened, our minds need to be opened so that we can begin to understand who Jesus is. And all too often, I think you can fall into thinking, if I just have a rational enough explanation, that will open somebody's mind. And rationality is important, and explanations are important, but revelation is also important. And you see this combination in all these events on that day. You have the experience of Jesus plus the revelation of Jesus that comes from Scripture or explanations. And we need both of those. We need the experience of Jesus. We need to see and touch and handle and eat. We need that experience of Jesus, but we also need the revelation from Scripture. And often our personalities kind of send us in one direction or the other for where we like to camp because we're drawn to one thing or the other. If we stay in the thing that we're most drawn to, we end up getting a little bit immature, and full maturity takes both of these. Not just a deep understanding of Scripture, but an actual experience of Jesus. And not just an actual, wonderful, life-giving experience of Jesus with no foundation, but also a deep understanding of Scripture and the revelation that goes along with it. Both of those things are essential. The explanation and the experience. The explanation and the experience. As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a modern day monk that I had read. His name is Father Maximus, and he said something that actually went home enough that it started changing what I did before I met with people. And he's talking about people who are somewhat resistant to the good news about Christ. And he said, this is a quote from him, this is why the holy elders advise that before you speak to someone about Christ, you must pray for that person so that grace may proceed ahead of you and prepare the ground. This is why before you speak about Christ to someone, pray so that God's grace can go before you and prepare the ground 
for their experience and their understanding to come together. And I have too often gone in to speak with someone without asking, God, would you send your grace ahead of this conversation and prepare this person for this conversation and prepare me to have this conversation with this person. There are even times when I need to pray that for myself. God, there's something I need to deal with with you. Would you bring your grace into me ahead of this? Prepare me as a fertile ground so that I experience and I understand you. Because on my own, I'm going to be closed off. Would you open me to understand? And that's what Jesus is doing here. When he opened them to understand, we're in verse 46. Here's what he told them. And this is a summary. He's been giving summaries all day. Well, actually, the angels gave a summary to the women early that morning at the tomb. When the women came looking for Jesus, they didn't find him. But the angels did explain. And they said, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? That was the explanation of first one that happened in the chapter. The Messiah had to suffer and then enter glory. Listen for these themes that are in each explanation. There's a little bit of difference, but there's key themes in each one, too. When Jesus, later on that day, was talking to the two people from Emmaus, here's the explanation they got. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Whoops, I'm sorry. That is the wrong one. That's the one that we're about to hear. The disciples said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? The women with the angels heard, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And now when Jesus is talking to the Messiah, to the disciples, here's the explanation he gives them in verse 46. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. This is the first time in the day we've heard that last part. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. But he points out the two things we've already heard, that the Messiah will suffer and that he will rise again on the third day. And if you look at that list, right there in the middle of it, we switch from the past to the future. There's these two things, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That has happened, that's past. And they're standing in this room in Jerusalem on the day of the resurrection, and they hear Jesus say, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, their minds are probably so blown at this point that they can't really take all of that in. But if they did, they would have heard that, wait, I'm the witness of that thing? Wait, what? Preach to all the name, what? What's happening here? We've gone from the focus and the action being with the Messiah, who's suffering, who's dying, who's raised again on the third day, who's entering glory to Repentance for the forgiveness of his sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is Luke's 
equivalent of the Great Commission in the, at the end of Matthew that talks about go into all the world and proclaim. This is a radical new thing opening up. So right here we have this beautiful end of kind of the end of the movie of Luke, and we have this hint that there is a sequel coming. Because we're in the last chapter of the book, but we still have this incredible thing left to happen. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins preached to all the nations. You and I are living in the last half of that sentence. We're living in the preached to all nations era. That's where we are sitting. Now, I don't know if the disciples got it at that point, if they said, wait a minute, what? Us? You're kidding. But Jesus went on to say, you're not on your own. He said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So what my Father has promised is a little bit vague. It takes us a little bit to put together, wait, that's the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying is, the Father has promised the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to send that to you, but stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now again, if the disciples are really tracking, the thing of, I'm going to send you, sounds like Jesus is somewhere else and not with them. And who knows if they really understood that Jesus was not going to be with them much longer. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you somebody who will be with you. He had told them that before he died, but again, a lot has happened between then and now. He said, I'm going to send you what the Father promised, but you stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And I like that little piece where it says, stay here in the city. There is a goodness about them hanging together in Jerusalem and waiting for the Father's promise together until they've been clothed with power together. Think what would have happened if they would have scattered off around the country of Israel. Somebody went to this village, somebody else went to their home in that village, somebody else went over here. They would have dissipated and scattered out, staying together and waiting for the power from on high is so important. We needed also the experience of Jesus. We needed the explanation of Jesus. We also need to stay together. There is something about powerful about us even now staying together and not dissipating that does something that helps our souls experience and receive the revelation. And he's saying, stay together until you receive this power, what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit, until you've been clothed in power from on high. And notice, if you will, in there, that there is the Trinity in action. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying, I, the Son, will send what the Father has promised, which is the Holy Spirit. We are with you. We are working on the Father's global plan together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the disciples are sitting at this hinge point in history between all that God has done up until now and promised and everything that's going to happen. And God is working out this plan. In the middle of this very human experience that they're having, God's reality is breaking in. Something has changed.
something has changed. With the resurrection, the beginning life of the age to come has broken in. Like it is all different now because there is a resurrected Jesus standing in front of them. The age to come, the kingdom has been ushered in and they are now in the thick of not yet, but sort of. So we talk about the kingdom in terms of now and not yet. They are in a now and they're in a not yet, but they're beginning to see that breakthrough into that now and not yet. We live still in the now and not yet. We live on the other side of Pentecost where the power from on high has come. The disciples were clothed. We'll see that in a few weeks in the book of Acts. And this phrase, clothed with power from on high, it really is the exact words that are used for putting on clothing. So this morning, you were clothed with whatever you pulled out of the closet or off the floor, and you're wearing it right now, and you were clothed in it. And Jesus is saying, this is your experience of my spirit. I want you clothed with power from on high. I have spent time asking myself, Connie, what does it look like to be clothed with power? Are you clothed with power? Am I? The Holy Spirit indwells me. Am I clothed with power? And I don't have an answer to that because I think my experience is lacking in this. I think in this I have an explanation and I lack some experience. And so I'm asking God for more experience. And one of the things that's happened to me is as I have come upon some just even glitches in life in the past two or three weeks, I've said to myself, Connie, you're clothed with power. What does that mean? What does that look like now? in this. You are not left on your own to handle this. You are clothed with power. The Holy Spirit is with you. It's one of those things I'm aware of and I'm still sorting out. Ask me in a year. Hopefully I will have a different answer for you. Ask us all in a year and hopefully we'll have a different answer for ourselves. What happens next might happen next or it might happen in a month and a half. We're not sure. Somewhere in this chapter, there are 40 days worth of time that Luke doesn't cover because he's ending up his gospel. And so the next thing that happens is we see Jesus departing. And we know from other places in scripture that a month and a half, 40 days, lapsed between the resurrection day and the time that Jesus departed. So we're thinking that somewhere in here, in these verses, there's a 40-day gap that Luke just doesn't cover. There's a bit of a telescoping of this, which happens when you're writing something up. Luke's getting ready to finish and close out this chapter. And here's how he closes out his whole account of Jesus' life. Verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple, praising God. That last verse, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed at the temple, praising God. They had just seen Jesus for the last time. For the last time in their lives, they had just seen Jesus, and yet they returned with great joy. They returned, they stayed in the temple praising God. Something had happened to these people. To turn them from the troubled, the doubting, the fearful people who thought they saw a ghost 
to people who had just seen Jesus for the last time and were filled with joy and were filled with blessing and were filled with praising. And what had happened? The resurrected Jesus had happened. They had had a month and a half of experiencing resurrection. That is what had happened to them. And now, even though Jesus had ascended, and the, again, the language here, I would love to know what that looked like. I would love to know what that felt like. I would love to know what that was like. And we are just not told. What we're told is that Jesus departed from them and was taken up into heaven. Now, one of the beautiful things that that does is they saw him depart. So nobody could start rumors that said, hey, Jesus isn't around, but I can't rumors he's off in Galilee somewhere. Or I think he went to Rome. Or I think he went down to Egypt. Or we saw him here. They had all seen him leave. So they knew the resurrected Lord was no longer on earth with them in the way that he had been. They had seen a change happen. And now they're really in this in-between time between the resurrected Jesus and the coming of what the Father has promised. It's going to happen soon, but it hasn't happened yet. And in that interim, they are full of joy and they are praising God. Somehow, the explanations that Jesus had given came into them to such an extent that just 10 days later, when the Holy Spirit did come, and Peter, as we'll see, is giving an explanation in that temple, because that's where they've been hanging out. And people are speaking in tongues early in the morning, and the crowds around are going, they are drunk? Something is wrong. And Peter said, no, they're not drunk. What's happened is the Father has poured out the Spirit like he promised. And here's exactly what Peter said in Acts 2, just a few days after Jesus left. Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. What a great transformation in Peter from the night of the crucifixion where he is denying Jesus until 50 days later when he stands up with a clear explanation, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, whom you now see. What happened in the interim? the resurrected Jesus. That's what happened. The experience and the explanations from Jesus and the clothing with power from on high is what changed him. I'm going to leap forward a little bit in Acts and give you the end of the story. Remember how Jesus had said, repentance for sins will be preached in my name to all the nations and you are witnesses of these things? If we leap forward a little bit in Acts to Acts 4, we actually see this happening. We see it playing out. So there's a time there, and it describes what the early church is like. And it said they all joined together in the temple, and they were praying, and they were breaking bread together, and they were listening to the apostles' teaching. And then here's what it says about the apostles in verse 40 or 33. With great power... The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Exactly what Jesus had said, much power, you're going to testify to my resurrection, and much grace was upon them all. 
And that is what I want for us as we head into the book of Acts, these exact things. I would want us to say with great power, we testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace is upon us all. What does it mean to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to have a life that testifies that resurrection exists? What does it mean to have a life and words that say, I live on the other side where resurrection exists? I was asking this question a couple weeks ago as I had been sitting in the resurrection and I was driving to work one day and I was in a bad mood. It happens. And there was no particular reason for it. Nothing was particularly wrong. Circumstances were fine. I was just in a bad mood. And so I was kind of mumbling and praying about it and just like, God, I'm kind of in a bad mood today. I probably shouldn't be in a bad mood. I don't know, here I am. And this thought from God just cut across my mind. And I felt God was saying, I can heal that. And it just stopped me while I was driving, so it didn't stop me, but it got my attention. And I was like, wait, what? You can heal a bad mood? You don't heal a bad mood. It's just a bad mood. You heal, I don't know, sickness and disease and deep heart wounds and uh, not a bad mood. And I was like, that's kind of a waste of healing on a bad mood. <laughs> you know? And another thought just drilled straight in, and it was a question this time, is resurrection real? And that one stopped me even more. I'm like, seriously, God, are you offering to resurrect me out of a bad mood? And I felt like he was saying, if resurrection isn't real here, when can it be real? If it's real in all these other places, but it's not, life cannot come into you here, what is the point? It's all as small as a bad mood to me. I can heal and resurrect all of it. Connie, is resurrection real? And I realized that when I'm in a bad mood, I'm not particularly eager to become cheerful quickly. Because, <laughs> you know, bad mood. And one of the things that had to happen was I had to surrender to being healed out of it. I had to, quote, give up my, quote, right to have, quote, just a bad mood. I had to receive and accept some resurrection in a place I did not expect it, wasn't looking for it, and felt I probably didn't even need it. And I've, I've puzzled over that since. The question, Connie, is resurrection real? And I'm like, what is up? Why would you do that? And I have sensed that God is relentless about bringing life to places in our hearts and lives and bodies that aren't experiencing life. God is relentless with us in bringing life. And if that means a bad mood gets healed, that means a bad mood gets healed. There is a relentlessness about the resurrected Jesus saying, experience me, touch me, understand that this is the reality you live in, even though it looks like you're in normal human life. Life has broken in. You know how we have the phrase, well, that's life. You know, we usually say that when something bad has happened. Well, that's life. 
Jesus is looking at us and going, that's not life. I'm life. And he's saying, I am aliveness. And when I come in, that's life. And death starts working backward. Attitudes, mindsets, emotions that have been tainted with darkness and death start getting healed. Circumstances don't always change. Bodies don't always get healed, but life breaks in. And you end up praising and rejoicing when you didn't know that that's where you were going to end up. Even if the circumstance didn't shift. And this is what we're going to see as we head into Acts in a couple weeks, that life breaks in again and again and again and again. And that is life. The resurrection is real.